welcome back into the Drink at the Rink podcast, episode five, coming your way right now. And I'm very excited about our guest for this episode. Great to connect with Brian Boucher, 13-year NHL veteran. His name's in the NHL history books. If you don't know why, you will learn why very shortly. And just an awesome guy and a guy that I think has done an incredible job of translating what was a long NHL career into a very uh, promising broadcasting career already has morphed into the uh, top broadcasting position and team with NBC Sports, working with the legendary Doc Emmerich and Eddie Olchick as the between the bench analyst uh, for their broadcasts. And we'll learn a little bit more about what Bush's plans are uh, as far as the the upcoming hub is concerned, and the the bubble situation and the broadcasts. And of course, look back on his career and some. Almost as far as nearly getting championships to his name and also the records that he set along the way. So without further ado, grab a drink and settle in for a drink at the rink with Brian Boucher. A 13-year NHL career. He wore seven NHL team sweaters, has his name in the league history books. We're going to get to that. A proud son of Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And now an analyst for the NHL and NBC. We get a drink at the rink with Brian Boucher today. Boucher, thanks so much for taking some time and doing this. Yeah, my pleasure, Josh. Uh, great to be with you. Yeah, great to have you on. And uh, as you heard, uh, and I have a couple guests on in the past that have made comments about the drink at the rink name. That is the name of this podcast. So usually before we get into the hockey talk, we start things off with a drink. And I don't want to speak for you, Boosh, but as I mentioned, a Rhode Island native yourself. My wife is from Massachusetts. Most of the people that I've come across uh, with regard to her family and her friends that are from that area, they enjoy their beverages. So like I said, I don't want to speak for you, but do you fall into that category? And what are you drinking on these hot summer days? Uh, yeah, I don't shy away from a beverage here and there. Uh, yeah, I'm primarily a beer and, uh, and wine drinker, so uh, I keep it pretty simple. Although in the summertime, I don't mind them. the odd margarita here and there. Uh but, uh, yeah, I mean, I like, a, you know, after a round of golf, nothing better than a cold beer. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. That's uh, that's the way to go on that front. From the hockey perspective, with the drinks being concerned, were you a big coffee guy? Like, I see these guys nowadays, I mean, just being with the Penguins, Patrick Hornquist, this guy downs, like, six Starbucks grande lattes every day. Like, were you, were you a big coffee guy? I was and still am. Uh yeah, it, I don't know what it is. I mean, I think it's just one of those things. When you get to the rink after having a an hour and a half, two hour nap, you need a little you need a little pick me up there. And uh, I I certainly uh, started to you know get my love for coffee uh, when I started playing in the minors, and uh, it's carried on to this day. Yeah, it gets you through the the uh, the long drag, I guess, of the game day. Maybe even more so now on the broadcast side, where you're not on the ice in the morning and everything with that. Um, so we have our drinks, uh, we can get to the rink, uh, just quickly get through that little section, but you know, not far as we keep our fingers crossed, hopefully from the return of hockey in our world, we're just a couple weeks away from what we expect will be the beginning of these qualifying rounds. And then the Stanley cup playoffs will get underway. And I know you'll be a part of that as will I here in Pittsburgh. Uh, but I wanted to ask before we got into anything, you know, in particular about you and your career and what's ahead for the NHL. Uh, the goalie perspective in this whole thing, I, I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, players, you know, we can you can skate, you can 
take shots. He can do whatever you want. Goaltenders, I guess, to an extent, can skate, can can get themselves in the physical shape. But mentally and, and just the timing and everything, how much of a challenge do you think this whole aspect is going to be for the goaltenders where they'll get really one exhibition game of real action and then all of a sudden it's real accounts and you need to be sharp? Yeah, it's going to be a challenge for these guys. And I, I think, you know, when you or a, you know, a point of uh, context, I guess, you know, typically during the summer, you skate, you get into training camp, and you play, you know, six, seven preseason games, and then you start the regular season. The games, I mean, when you start October 5th, first regular season game, you know, is, are the games high stakes? Of course they are. They're bigger than preseason, but they're not the stakes that we're going to have right now. So, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, thinking you can just tiptoe into this thing, uh, that that's not the case. You're going to have to find your game pretty quickly. There's going to be a lot of pressure on these goaltenders. There's no doubt about that. Um, and whatever they've been doing over the last month, it, you know, it's not, you know, that's not something that you can replicate, uh, you know, getting into a game. So whatever they've been doing from a technical standpoint, maybe in small groups or working with the goalie coach, uh, hopefully that work that they put in was quality work. And, and can get them to where they got to get to here quickly. But I think the goaltenders are going to have the toughest uh, transition from this time off to finding their A game right away. I I wouldn't be surprised if we see some guys uh, trying to shake off some rust uh, early on, and that that might lead to some high-scoring games, or that might lead to some teams really, really buckling down on defensive systems and maybe not playing that wide-open hockey that maybe we want to see. Uh, because the coaches might recognize the fact that the goaltenders might have the furthest to come, so they got to find a way to protect them. Uh, either way, it's going to be it's going to be fun to see how it how it unfolds. Uh, you know, whether it's at least the high scoring games or teams really trying to find their systems in order to protect the goaltenders early on. It's it's going to make for high drama. Yeah, it will, and it's going to be uh, a fast and furious slate with all these games. It's looking like you know four to five games, six games a day there for the first week and a half, and. Uh, it'll be busy, and as you said, probably a lot of drama and a lot of unexpected uh, drama at that for what could potentially happen with some of the situations within teams with players getting back and healthy, with goaltenders needing to be sharp right off the hop. There's there's a lot of question marks up in the air, and it will be uh, very interesting to follow. We're going to get to that a little later in the conversation, but uh, obviously you know a thing or two about tending goal in this league, high-stakes environments in this league, and Before we talk about some of the things that you've done in your career, I wanted to go back to the very beginning of your NHL career. Uh, Originally the 22nd pick of the Flyers back in 1995. And I remember when you broke into the league, uh, 20-win season in your rookie year as a 23-year-old in the 99-2000 campaign. Uh, That Flyers team, I I was there the night when uh, Eric Lindros was hit by Scott Stevens in Game 7 against the Devils. And I I think we all, I'm sure yourself included, wonder what could have been uh, for that team had they gotten through that Devils team and gotten to the final. But uh, such an amazing run and such a great season. What was that whole year like for you to, to not just come into the fold of the NHL, but to do it in Philadelphia, to do it on a contender, and then be a part of a run like that? Yeah, truthfully, it was a magical year. Uh, like you said, I was a, a first-round pick of Philadelphia in 95, maxed out at junior. Uh, so I played my 18- and 19-year-old years in junior in the Western Hockey League and then two full seasons with the Philadelphia Phantoms and the Miners. So uh, I'd like to think I paid my dues in, in, you know, in, in getting my way to the National Hockey League. And when Ron Hextall retired, that opened the door for me to – 
get a spot with the Philadelphia Flyers, and it started off uh, sparingly and as a backup and eventually led to an increased role as the season wore on. And, you know, truthfully, everything everything that I touched that year seemed to turn to gold. I mean, coaches put me in great positions to succeed. I uh, had a veteran team that really rallied around playing in front of a, a young goaltender and protected me. Um, and it led to 20 wins. And then eventually, as we got in the second half of the season, um, unfortunately, Roger Nielsen was sick with cancer and had to step aside. And Craig Ramsey took over as head coach in the interim um, uh, with the interim tag, and he wanted to play John Van Beesbrook and myself in three-game segments each. And, and he said, well, you know, you play three games consecutively, then Beezer will play three games consecutively, and we'll do that for the last, I don't know, maybe 30 games or so. And at the end of the 30 games, we'll decide who's going to be the starter for the playoffs. And lo and behold, uh, at the end of the 30 games, he decided to go with me as the as a starter against Buffalo in game one of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And there's a moment that I, you know, I, you almost had to pinch yourself. You couldn't believe it. I mean, here you were, you know, playing with guys that you grew up idolizing, and now you're playing in the Stanley Cup playoffs in a city like Philadelphia where, you know, the expectations are high. And, and um, you know, it was, it was a magical year. And unfortunately, like you said, we fell short game seven of the conference final. We blew a 3-1 series lead against the Devils, and uh, Lindros got knocked out of that game, and we ended up losing that game late 2-1 to the Devils, and the Devils eventually stand with the Stanley Cup champions. But, Boy, it was a, a magical year for me with uh, so many great memories. Uh, I joke around and say that my career was all downhill after that, but uh, <laughs> it certainly was a, a great start to uh, to my NHL career. Yeah, it was it was fun to watch from a distance, and I, I've had a lot of fun uh, kind of going back and forth with people in Pittsburgh about, of course, the game. I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. And during that run in, in 2000, where uh, you played the Penguins and and the memorable five overtime game against the Penguins. I was looking up the the box score before I talked to be, to you. 151 minutes and 48 seconds of game time logged by you that night at the Igloo. Where does that night uh, rank as far as that whole experience? And um, you talk about you know pinching yourself. I mean that kind of a situation. That was a lot of guys pinching themselves probably with how historic it was timing wise. Yeah, it's in my top three uh, for my NHL career. Uh, I mean, when you go, when you show up to the rink that day, you never can imagine that you would play a game that would end at two thirty-five in the morning. <laughs> um, you know, you don't prepare yourself for that. Uh, it was a big moment. I mean, you know, we're, we were down two nothing in that series uh, to Pittsburgh. We lost our first two games at home. Came back to Pittsburgh and things were looking bleak. I think there was some talk of maybe a goaltending change and maybe Beezer coming in. It didn't happen. And uh, we won game three in overtime. Andy Delmore, I don't know if people remember that game, oh, yeah. but uh, Delhi was a, a skilled, uh, smooth skating defenseman with a big shot. Uh, and when he was confident, he was dangerous. And he got hot in that series. He scored the game, game winner in overtime in game three to get it to 2 1. And then obviously the epic game. In game four, where Keith Primo won it, uh, which set the stage for Andy Delmore scoring a hat trick in game five back in uh, back in Philadelphia. But that game four was the series, and I think as that game wore on and the night wore on, I think we all realized in the locker room that whoever was going to win this game probably was going to win the series, um, and that's how it played out. But credit to the Pittsburgh Penguins because even though we you know we beat them pretty good at home in game five, I think it was six three. 
they put up quite a fight in game six. They were, they were a tough team to close out. I think it, it was a 2-1 victory in Pittsburgh to win the series. But, man, they did, they did not give up. Uh, that was a team that was uh, skilled, a team that had great goaltending that year with Ron Tugnut, and uh, they were a tough out. Uh, they certainly took a lot, of, a lot out of our gas tank, I think, heading into the conference final. I feel like, Bush, with that game, you hear so many stories about how guys were, you know, trying to just stay alert and, and keep, you know, their body nourished while this is going on. I mean, as you mentioned, not expecting ever to be in a building until 2, 3 in the morning. How are you going about that as a goaltender? I mean, you have to have so many thoughts banging around in your head and just going into the dressing room between periods. What were you doing in that time to try to stay sharp? Uh, I think staying sharp wasn't difficult. You know, just one, you know, one foot in front of the other, right? You know, you worry about uh, the next shot. That's all you focus on. Uh, when you get to the intermission, obviously rehydrate as best you can. I mean, you couldn't put enough fluids in you uh, <laughs> to keep you hydrated. You know, cramping became an issue as we got into period seven. Um, and I remember going out for the for that eighth period, uh, scraping my crease and feeling my hips starting to seize up and. I actually decided not to stretch because if I stretched one area of my body, then the other area of my body would start to cramp up. So uh, we had gone through IV bags uh, in between periods. Guys, you know, were really struggling with the cramps, and we went through all the food. I think the Pittsburgh Penguins did the same. Uh, the, the whole building, I think, ran out of food. Uh, in the concessions, we went through pizzas, power gels, granola bars, everything that you can get your hands on, we went through. Um, <laughs> but it was just a matter of, like, you know, just try to, you know, keep, you know, worry about the next, the next shot, you know, and for players, I think the next shift and you, you don't know when it's going to end. And that's probably the most stressful part. Uh, and just trying to stay hydrated was the other thing that you were focused on. And, and the game seemed to slow down though, to be honest with you, as you, you know, I think the quality of hockey was probably pretty poor at that point, but you know, obviously the stakes are high because the next game, the next goal wins it. But, uh, by and large, it wasn't a very fast-paced overtime session. I mean, it, it, the game seemed to crawl to a you know to a crawl, just that. Yeah, and obviously a memorable result for the Flyers and the Penguins for different reasons in that game, as you mentioned, Keith Primo ending it in the fifth overtime. So I wanted to jump jump ahead a couple of seasons. Now, with you being in the desert, member of the Phoenix Coyotes, uh, and you think about. When you look back at that game, as I said, member of the Flyers against the Penguins, you didn't allow a goal after the early goal from Pittsburgh from Alex Kovalev. Uh, you went 149 minutes and 26 seconds of not allowing a goal in that game. You'd have to add another 180-plus minutes uh, to reach the record you set with the then-Phoenix Coyotes in the 2003-2004 campaign. And I, I had to make sure of this number. I knew it was up there, but 332 minutes and one second. I'm sure you know it. Uh, I mentioned the NHL record you held in the intro. That's it for the listeners out there. But, Boosh, when you think back, um, how was that whole process from game to game when you set the uh, shutout streak in, in those five games of just trying to, I guess, as it built, you know, one shutout in a row, I think people are, you know, it's fairly commonplace in the NHL, two in a row, people start to talk. But then when you get to three and four, you have a lot of attention on you, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, that's exactly how it goes. You know, back-to-back shutouts, it happens. You you know, goaltenders get into a zone, and, and, and uh, you know, they ride a nice little wave there, but typically it, it, it peters out after that. But uh, once we got past three shutouts, that's when you started hearing, you know, talk of uh, NHL records, and, you know, they talk of modern-day uh, record, which I had no I, at the time I had no idea what the difference between the modern era and, and the old era, 
guess that refers to uh, the modern era is when they you, you could actually make a forward pass. I guess there was huh. a time in NHL hockey where uh, uh, you could not make a forward pass, so you had to skate and drop it. I guess, and then I guess that you know the the scoring back then was was much lower and much more difficult to score goals, uh, which is why maybe the the, the overall record uh, stands even longer. And I don't know what the minutes are for that, but. Uh, any, anyhow, so yeah, you start hearing this stuff and now you start to think, oh my goodness, uh, yeah, could, could we do it? Is it possible? Uh, and, and it, you know, the days in between games become longer because, you know, now you get into this point and you start to think about it. I mean, you're, you're human, right? You want to stay in the moment and just, you know, keep riding that wave, but you're also kind of like, boy, this would be pretty neat to try and challenge history. Um, and fortunately for me, I was able to do it, uh, especially on a team in Phoenix where it was not our Philadelphia Flyers team. I mean, we were not uh, a playoff team. Uh, we weren't a very good sound defensive team. We were not a very good team, period. Uh, we had a lot of holes in our club, and we didn't get a, a lot of attention in the National Hockey League uh, being in the desert. So for that five-game stretch, it was nice to get all of that. We, we, we looked like a playoff team. We played like a playoff team. Uh, the discipline, the block shots, the commitment to winning in a time of the year in December, January, where you typically don't see that. Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of attention, which was pretty cool. Something that, you know, I, I you know, I, you kind of miss a little bit, right? You're in the, you're in the desert and it's a great place to live and a lot of sunshine and then palm trees and that's all great, but you miss the attention that you get in places like Pittsburgh and Philly and New York and Toronto and places like that, uh, hockey crazy cities. Uh, so it was, it was a nice time. Goaltenders are so uh, uh, well known, I guess, for some of their superstitions and some of the things that they keep uh, close to themselves. And I, I guess those things evolve as the success comes from those superstitions. But was there any weird ones that you picked up during that stretch that, that you you had to stay with during that five game run? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, the only thing that I, I had. My- I had a roommate, uh, which goaltenders typically don't have roommates uh, because we are a little off, uh, a little <laughs> odd. Um, but I, in Phoenix, we were, you know, a, a cost-conscious uh, operation, I guess you could say. And so we had roommates, and my roommate was Brian Savage. And uh, Savvy and I would get uh, ice cream uh, every night for room service before the night before the game. And it, it seemed to work. So we stayed with it and we made, it was like a big, you know, when we'd go to dinner with the guys, uh, guys, some guys would order dessert, uh, at dinner. I don't even know if the players today get desserts. They're so health conscious. these guys. So <laughs> <laughs> this was back in the day when we get dessert and we would say, we would decline dessert at dinner say, no, 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 uh, we're going to get it in, in our room. We've got, we've got a nice little game plan going here and, it seemed to work for the five games because uh, I think four of those games were on the road. Uh, you know, it was pretty fun. I mean, I don't think it became a superstition. It was more more of a joke more than anything. Yeah, you, as I'm sure you've learned, that the media, when they go out to eat, there's not meant much more of a health-conscious, less atmosphere <laughs> with the dessert aspect. Uh, You're right about that. A little, a little different than the, the player approach. But uh, as far as that stretch is concerned, one last question on it. Do you remember your reaction uh, when it ended? Just looking back at the goal uh, last night before I talked to you, obviously it was a fluky one from Randy Robitaille, but uh, do, do you remember kind of the feeling that – was it? Was there a weird sense of relief? Was it, you know, a shot in the gut because it was over? I mean, do, what do you remember feeling in that moment? Uh, 
I remember it was a fluky goal. I kind of couldn't believe it went in. It was it was a shot that I, it felt like it was going wide over the, over my blocker side. It hit my defenseman David Tanabe and changed direction, and it ended up going over my glove hand. And it was a little bit of shock, you know. I think uh, you almost at, at that point you almost feel like you're gonna you're you're almost unbeatable. It was the weirdest thing. I mean, I, I never really felt that way ever again in my career having a stretch like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I truly felt like when I got in the crease that I was not going to get scored on. It was it was the oddest thing. And when that happened, it was kind of like, oh man, that's a bummer. This is you know this ride is over. And my teammates came out and celebrated and came out like we, you know, at the end of a game and, and, you know, congratulated me. And I just was kind of, it felt weird, you know what I mean, for it to be done. And, and oddly enough, I mean, I, I remained in the zone uh, for the rest of that game. And that game ended in a 1-1 tie back when there were ties. And uh, so had I not given up that goal, maybe the streak would have continued, you know, would have, could have, should have. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was disappointing because it was one of those that, you know, it, it was a fluky goal, but I can tell you along the along the way in those five games, five and a half games, there was a lot of, you know, situations where pucks hit posts and stayed out and could have gone in and didn't. So for all the ones that I caught a break on, that one, that one I didn't. But, you know, 332 minutes, I guess, is long enough. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things that you, you can't imagine you'd keep the puck out of the net for that long. Yeah, that, you, how much do you take pride in that? I mean, that's a pretty significant record as far as individual uh, accomplishments for players in their NHL careers, as you mentioned in this the new age of hockey. Like that's that's some, one of those ones that I think people look up just to see what the longest streak is as players start to approach those marks. And your name is is always going to be there. Yeah, I think it surprises people. They're like, "Who this guy?" <laughs> um, I'm proud of it. I mean, uh, anytime you can have. Uh, your name in the record books, I think, uh, is pretty neat. And, uh, I mean, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm proud of my career. I mean, I, I, do I have regrets and do I have uh, wishes that it would have been, you know, better? Of course. I think we all do. We're all competitors and we think, you know, we, we, we could have done better. But uh, by and large, 17 years pro, 13 in the NHL. Um, I'm, I'm, proud, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that record. I'm proud of the teams that I played on. I, I, I never, unfortunately, won a Stanley Cup. Had a couple of close calls with 2000 and 2010 in Philadelphia. Uh, but, you know, look, to, to have your name in the record books is pretty cool. I mean, I, I, if I could trade it, I would trade it for, like, having the most shutouts in history, in <laughs> NHL history. Yeah. That means, you know, you were pretty consistent throughout your career. But for five games, I, I had an opportunity to be uh, one of the best, I guess. And uh, for that, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud. Yeah, that's a that's a five game stretch that'll live on until it's matched. And with how the NHL is right now, I, I don't know if that's a a record that'll be hit anytime soon. Uh, you mentioned 2010 with the Flyers, a great segue because that's where I wanted to go after this. Uh, you talk about you know uh, so many players you hear. I feel like say that the individual records are great, but they always want to win a championship. And you just mentioned you you wish you could have had a chance at that. And obviously, you had a couple opportunities with the Flyers. But 2010 was was another magical kind of run for that Flyers team. When you think about how you guys got into the postseason with that shootout against the Rangers, uh, the comeback against Boston, that run, I guess, 
when you look at that roster, that Flyers team was still a pretty talented team, and I think a lot of people probably felt were better than they finished the season. But at the same time, because of where they were seated and how they got in, it almost did seem to be a little bit of a Cinderella-esque run to that group. Did you feel that way when you were living it, or what was it like? Yeah, everything you just said I agree with. I mean, we had a we had a good team, and we should not have been in the position we were in to begin with. Uh, really good lineup. They picked up Chris Pronger in the offseason uh, to help with that veteran leadership, added a guy like Ian LaPierre as far as, like, you know, that veteran presence with, uh, coupled with some, some young, talented players and, and Mike Richards and, and Jeff Carter and James Reed Reemsdyke was a, was a rookie then and Claude Giroux. So there was a lot of good pieces uh, to that team. Unfortunately, we, we didn't start very well. We had a coaching change, I believe, in November. John Steven, Stevens was fired. Peter Laviolette came in, and, um, you know, Lavi did a great job. But as far as, like, uh, as far as, uh, you know, getting our act together, we couldn't really do it. And that was, that was, a, that was a tough thing. But, look, we had, you know, we had some character in that room, and, and eventually we get into the playoffs, and I think we were, you know, being a seventh seed, I think we were better than a seventh seed, to be honest with you. But uh, that was a fun year. That was a fun year because I think we proved a lot of people wrong. We got on a run, and we got hot at the right time. And I think that's, that's what, you know, you see that now more than ever in the playoffs. That was 2010, but now you fast forward and you watch St. Louis and what they did, mm-hmm. uh, getting in, being in last place in January, but, you know, peaking at the right time and, I think we were the first team in, in you know, in, in recent memory that did that, you know, and, and, and rode it to a Stanley Cup final. Unfortunately, didn't get the job done, but certainly proud of, you know, that group and, and the resiliency that we that we showed because we, we had a lot of injuries. Ray Emery was out for the season uh, with hip surgery, and, and uh, you know, he was expected to be our starter. It didn't work out. Uh, we got Michael Layton on waivers, and, just a big goalie carousel, but we found a way to, to get through it and get to the finals. And part of that run was, of course, the the historic comeback against the Boston Bruins in the second round of that year. You win Game Seven in Boston after being down three nothing in the series. Uh, as I mentioned, you're a New England guy. What what was that like for you? Uh, did you get the silent treatment from back home there, or what was it like? Yeah, I mean, I got a lot of friends that are Bruins fans. Um, I grew up a Canadians fan, truthfully, in Rhode Island. So I was, uh, I always hated the Bruins when I grew up. So, you know, it was not difficult for me to play <laughs> against them. I always, I always wanted to beat them. Uh, and, you know, for us to do that to them, although, you know, it, it was short lived because the next year they, we got up, we got down three nothing to them again the next year and, and eventually got swept and they went on to win the Stanley Cup. So I think they had the last laugh in all of it. Uh, but for that year, yeah, it was, it was it, like like everything else we did that season. We did it the hard way, and we fell behind three nothing in that series. Battled back. I ended up getting injured in that series in Game Five, and Michael Layton came in and, and finished the job, which was uh, you know which you know led to you know which continued the story of that season, right? Right. And we, I think we we're the second or third team in history to come back from down three nothing in a series. And just like I said, that, that group was a resilient group. We were a, a fun group. Uh, maybe at times the group liked to have a little bit too much fun away from the game. But, uh, you know, a group that, you know, when it came time to play and, and the chips were on the line, we had a lot of gamers uh, in, in that locker room. Guys like Pronger, guys like Tiemann and Danny Briere and Simone Gagne. I mean, we had a lot of guys that when, 
when push came to shove, uh, these guys came to play, and it was a fun group to be a part of. Definitely a highlight for your career, to be sure. And then after that, obviously, a few more years in the league before you hung up the skates, the pads, and then uh, moved into the broadcasting side. A pretty quick transition for you in doing that. And I know uh, a lot of people have been following your work and watched you rise very quickly to the uh, top team with NBC Sports NHL coverage, working with Doc Emmerich and Eddie Olchick. Uh, first of all, it seems quick, I think, when you when you think about, you know, the end of your career happening, you know, I, I believe in 2013, 2014, as far as playing in the National Hockey League is concerned. Uh, now here we are in 2020 and you're, you're working for NBC and doing all those, uh, you know, rinkside reporting and analyst work and all that kind of stuff. What has that journey been like for you as far as the transition and, and you know, becoming a broadcaster after, you know, living your entire life prior to that as a hockey player? Yeah, it's been fun. It's been really fun to stay in the game. Um, I, you know, I think we all have this idea that when we're done playing, that you know maybe we can, uh, you know, ride off into the sunset and do uh, do nothing, right? But what I found out when when I got done playing was that we're all creatures of habit, and we all crave, uh, you know, a purpose, right? And I took one year off to kind of like reset and decide what I wanted to do. I went and got my real estate license. I was thinking about uh, joining, uh, partnering up with Tim Kerr, who's got a, a, a fantastic real estate business down at the Jersey Shore, um, and he's really successful. And I was thinking about doing that, but I, I really missed hockey. And I, you know, after you know talking to him and deciding what I wanted to do, I said to him, I said, you know what, I, I think I want to. I think I want to stay in hockey and an, and an opportunity popped up to do uh, the color analyst job for the Lehigh Valley Phantoms. Uh, they, they just had a Rondack from Glens Falls down to uh, Allentown and had an opportunity to do that and, and also do the pre and post game for the Flyers on Comca- Comcast Sportsnet in Philadelphia. And, I, you know, I did it and it, it didn't pay nothing. Like, I mean, the pay was, I mean, it was pretty much doing it for free, if not, you know, gas money that I was using to get up to Allentown and but I I liked it I really enjoyed it I enjoyed being around the game I enjoyed talking about the game uh breaking it down and although I you know I probably wasn't very good at it when when I started you know I made mistakes where you know it it didn't really hurt anybody right I mean I don't think anybody was watching but at least I had the opportunity to to you know to make some mistakes uh and, and learn on the fly and I and I was thankful for that. And eventually, the Comcast gig led to you know some hits on NHL Network, which led to NBC Sports. And you know it, it happened fast. And um, it's been a great ride. And I'm I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to stay in the game and and work in this game and 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 not worry about wins and losses. You know, like for for years as a goaltender, you take your losses home with you. Uh, now I get to just really enjoy the game and enjoy being a part of it without having to worry about did we win or lose, right? And although, you know, the wins and losses now are did you have a good broadcast? And, I, and, I, and you know, I haven't had a perfect one yet. I, I don't anticipate having one anytime soon. There's always going to be mistakes in areas that you can improve upon, and that's what I'm trying to do. And uh, I'm so thankful to be working with, you know, Doc and Edzo. I mean, these guys are true pros, and they're, they're, they're awesome people. And it's been so much fun. I hope it. I hope it continues for a long, long time. 
Well, you guys make a great team. It's It's been fun to watch you grow and then obviously see the, the three of you become that top team has been entertaining. Obviously getting to watch those national games in, in the big spotlight situations throughout the postseason within the NHL. But uh, final thing for you, Bush, and then we can let you go. Um, when, when you look at this upcoming playoff situation, uh, I know everyone's approaching it differently here in Pittsburgh. Obviously, we're doing remote broadcasts and, and stuff of that nature. But from from your position, where you're usually between the benches, how do you anticipate handling a situation like this? And I'm not necessarily asking you to divulge anything that hasn't been uh, you know, made public. It's more of just you know when, when you're used to being able to, I guess, hear the, the chatter, feel the vibes on the benches and everything that comes with that, and now you're in a different kind of role with how people are going to be restricted a bit with, for obvious reasons. How do you anticipate handling that? Yeah, I think it's going to be different. Uh, you, you know, it looks like I'm going to be on site in the bubble, which is, uh, which is exciting. Uh, I'm happy about that. That's the plan right now. I got to go through extensive testing before I can get to, uh, the bubble and I anticipate everything being okay. And, but you know, it's going to be weird without fans. I think that's the one thing about playoff hockey that is so exciting. Uh, and as a player, you feed off of that, that energy and it's just you know it's a different time of year because everything gets you know ramped up another notch or two so it's going to be weird without the fans as far as where i'll be uh on site i'm not sure yet i think those are those uh those logistics are still being worked out whether i'm inside the glass where i typically am or perhaps a few rows up because there are going to be no fans remains to be seen but uh, the, I know some people are doing games uh, from studio and doing it off of, off of monitor. And although that's uh, – look, I mean, just to, to the fact that we have hockey and however we got to do it, we'll do it. We'll figure it out. Right. Uh, that's great. It's always going to be better to be on site and live. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing how these players uh, adapt to having no fans, uh, adapt to not having played in, in over four months. I think it's going to be uh, it's going to show how how truly professional these guys are, right? It's a, to know that they have an opportunity to play for a Stanley Cup, uh, you know, even in these adverse uh, circumstances. I, I think it's going to be fun, and I'm looking forward to it. I, I think you know if we can get there safely, if, if everybody can do their part and making sure that they they take care of themselves in order to put themselves in that position, I think once the NHL is there, I think they're I think they're going to be able to pull this off, uh, and it's certainly something that I'm looking forward to. I'm with you. It should be a lot of fun. Just keep our fingers crossed over the next week or so, week and a half, to make sure these guys get into the bubble unscathed for the most part. Uh, and then we can uh, look forward, hopefully, to a couple months of the best time of hockey in, in the weirdest time of year to get it. So <laughs> we'll take it. Uh, Boosh, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate this. Best uh, luck to you and your family. Wish you great health. Look forward to seeing you back on the tube soon, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, all right, Josh. Uh, really uh, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Huge thanks to Boosh for taking the time. Just a class A human being and obviously some great stories in there looking back on some pretty memorable moments uh, that he's been involved in throughout his career. Obviously some great times for him in Philadelphia 
and of course the records he set in the desert and now doing an incredible job as a part of NBC's hockey coverage. So uh, definitely a guy that I enjoy catching up with whenever we get the chance to crisscross uh, when the Penguins are featured on national TV and he's at the rink and also uh, just a chance to catch up here in what's been a bit of a strange time, obviously, for many overall throughout North America and the world. want to thank him again, Brian Boucher, for taking the time here on the Drink at the Rink and, of course, thank all of you out there for tuning in. This has been Episode 5. Episode 6 comes your way next week. Until then, cheers, everybody. Stay well.